So as John has mentioned, we're, we're going to be um, starting looking at the book of Daniel this morning. It is the most incredible book. It's full of um, great stories, great narratives of these um, amazing apocalyptic visions towards the end of the book that we will touch on in a few weeks' time. But as we start the book, the year is 605 BC. This is the setting, and it's at a time when the Babylonian Empire is gaining momentum. So if you have a Bible with you, if you've got a church Bible with you, we're on page 884, um, and we're going to read the whole of Daniel chapter 1. The words are on the screen as well. And you can pray for me as I pronounce some of these names, because they're a bit complicated. In the third year, in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine for the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told the king, but the official said, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my, have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine, and they were given drink, and they were given, gave them to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to these four people again. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom, the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray again, shall we? Lord, yeah, we pray that you will speak to us through this amazing account, unusual account at the start of this book. And we pray that we will see in Daniel something of a reflection of who we could be when our heart totally belongs to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I was going into Lidl last Friday with Claire, and I haven't told Claire that this happened, so she's none the wiser to this event. And as we were walking into Lidl, if you've been to Lidl in Latchford, it's the, it's the most thrilling place in the, in, in the world. And you go, and there's gardening stuff on the way in, on the right-hand side, just before the entrance. Claire goes in, she takes one of these, you know, these wheelie baskets that you go when you only want one item and it ends up piled high, this kind of thing. So she goes in, and I get distracted looking at gardening stuff. I'm looking at bulbs, hyacinth bulbs, daffodil bulbs, and I'm rooting through and seeing what I can find, because they were cheap, and that's always a good thing. So I pick up three bags of bulbs. I walk through the door of Lidl, and I see Claire stood there with the basket looking at lettuce. Um, I chuck the bulbs into the basket and say, oh, I've got these three. I hope these are all right. Claire turns around. Only it isn't Claire. (laughs) It's somebody else with long hair wearing a cream top who looks absolutely aghast that I have just lobbed my bulls on top of her shopping. How do you react in that situation? What would you do? Does anyone want to tell me what you would do? Run? Laugh? I didn't know what I did. I sort of muttered something unintelligible and went as far to the other side of the shop as I could. Didn't mention it to Claire and then just left. And thankfully, I didn't see this poor woman again. But life is full, isn't it? I did take the bulbs out of the thing. Yeah, no, no, she didn't buy them for me. But life is full of difficult situations. Sometimes when it's things like that, you know, no harm is done. It's not a situation that has any lasting impact apart from on my pride. But sometimes we do face difficult situations in life where the way we react makes a huge difference. Where the things that we say, perhaps on the spur of the moment or even after thinking, makes a significant difference difference. And it can make a difference to everyday life stuff. But it can also make a difference. If you today you're a committed follower of Jesus, what we say, the way we react in those difficult and tricky situations can make a difference for our discipleship and how we can share Jesus with other people. Now the first part of the book of Daniel is characterized by a series of events where Daniel and his friends will find themselves in difficult situations. Not the kind of situations like little, but really difficult situations, life or death situations, where they will be forced, are you going to make a stand for your faith, or are you going to backtrack? Are you going to have confidence in God, or are you not? And as we get into Daniel, one of the characteristics characteristics we'll find that Daniel has is the ability to do the right thing. He has the ability to do the right thing. And he will stand up for God in situations, in difficult, tricky situations. And it leads to natural sharing of his faith, and it leads through the book to the most unexpected people acknowledging God and worshipping him. And he becomes, if you like, an incredible lifestyle evangelist. So let's have a look at this chapter. Simon, if we could just have the the PowerPoint up, that would be great. Um, The setting is that we're in Babylon, and this is the Babylonian Empire, Um, around this sort of time. The bit in blue, if if you're into maps, you can see it's a pretty big empire. They're ruling a lot of um, the sort of Middle East and the Near East at this point. And what has happened at this point is we're seven years before the full exile of Judah into Babylon. But the king Nebuchadnezzar has besieged the city and he's taken items from the temple. He's got rid of one king and there's a sort of puppet king for a few years. And he takes some of the brightest and best men of Judah. He sort of strips out the best and takes them away to Babylon for his service. 
Now, these men who go, they are without physical defect, they're handsome, they're educated, and they're intelligent. Now, educated in Judah, they would know that there is one God. They would know who God is. They would know all about the law of Moses. They would know all about the rituals of sacrifice, of temple worship, of the forgiveness of sins through the offerings in the temple. But if you look at that map, the distance from Babylon to Jerusalem is an awful long way. It's 1,700 miles. And they are now in a totally different culture. Different culture, different worldview, different understandings of reality. And the people in, um, in Babylon, they believed that there wasn't one God, but there were lots and lots of gods, and the gods lived up there. You know, if you've ever seen those pictures of the Tower uh, of Babel, um, people trying to get up into the heavens, trying to, to sort of compete with the gods, that's the kind of view. There are all these gods who lived in the heavens. They then believed that there were demons and spirits who lived in the air, and then human beings who were rooted on the ground. But sometimes they believed human beings could even be more powerful than the gods. And so you get some of these kings of Babylon setting themselves up and saying, worship me, I'm a god. And so it's a bit of a mixed up way of thinking, but that's the, the sort of the, the religious life of Babylon. They were big on myths and legends, on astrology and dark powers. They spoke different languages to the languages that would be spoken in Judah. And they lived in this city with its amazing hanging gardens. You can see that's apparently what they were meant to have looked like, the hanging gardens of Babylon. They ate the most incredible food, they wore the most incredible clothes, and they lived in the greatest city on the world at the time. And so Daniel and his friends arrive. Now, they're not here on a work visa. They're not here as tourists, but they're essentially here as prisoners. They're here as captives. They've got no rights. There is no UN charter that governs how prisoners of war are to be treated or anything like that. They are here because King Nebuchadnezzar wants them here. The only thing going in their favor is they're handsome and they're bright. Just think for a moment. If you were in Daniel or his friend's shoes, you're this God-worshipping Jew. You have been dumped 1,700 miles away into a totally alien culture. How are you now going to live? How are you going to live with the very limited choices available to you? How are you going to live a faithful life to God? How are you going to live in a way that doesn't compromise who you are or compromise what you believe about God? See, one of the things I, I often find in life, and you, you may be able to give testimony to this too, is that you know, when we step out in courage for God, we find that God is already there. You know, when we sort of step out of the boat, if you like, we find that God is walking there with us. And what Daniel will find time and time again is when he makes the stand for his faith, when he makes the stand for God, that God is already there. God is already leading him, and God will be there with him. So what this chapter does is it says that four things happen to Daniel and his friends as they arrive in Babylon. And it's all to do with them being trained for the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. Four different types of experiences. The first one is on the screen. They learn the language in verse 4. If you're going to a new country and you can't speak anything of their language, it's going to be tough. So the first thing they do is to learn a language. Um, they have three years to do this, length of a degree course. I don't know whether that's where degree course length comes from. It would be interesting to know. Um, but learning a language is a great thing. Now, I've got GCSE grade C French. That's about my limit. Um, but if you can speak another language, good on you. It's a great thing to be able to do. No problems with that. This is not a compromise at all. This is a good, positive thing that is happening to them. Second thing that happens to them is they are made to learn 
the culture. I want you to imagine for a moment, you live somewhere the other side of the world, and you're going to come to the UK to live. How do you go about understanding the culture of the UK at the moment? Just shout out, what some of the things would you have to do to learn our culture and who we are as a nation? Q. Q. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to understand what a cue's all about, yeah. What type of things, what other things would you be doing? Sunday lunch. Sunday lunch, some of the, the things that, yeah, just the, the part of our culture. Watch the local news. Watch the local news, yeah, absolutely. Social media, you'd have to get onto social media. You'd probably have to read some of the history of the nation, work out why we are four countries in one country and what the tensions are between that. You'd have to try and work out what the political situation is. If you manage to sort that one out, come and let me know. That would be great. Um, But all these things, you'd be reading, you'd be online, you'd be watching news. You'd be trying to work out what is this country that I'm going to. So to understand Babylon, what happens to these these young men is they have to read. They are made to read for three years. They absorb Babylonian culture. Now, it's interesting. You might think, well, surely this is a compromise for Daniel. Surely this is something that he doesn't want to be doing. Well, probably not. He probably doesn't want to be learning all about this. But actually, he can learn whatever he wants as long as it doesn't shape him. As long as that learning doesn't shape his heart. And I think sometimes we can learn well, actually, from what happens here. Because as Christians, sometimes we can be tempted to sort of bury our heads in the sand and not really think about the culture in which we live and then wonder why people can't understand what we're saying. Whereas actually, if we think the culture, we need to learn all about it, but not let it all shape us. There's something very key there, I think, that Daniel can teach us. So he doesn't say anything. Nothing happens when they learn the culture. The third thing is a name change. I was chatting with Sam in the office this week about how much our names mean to us. You know, most human beings are named sometime shortly after birth, um, You don't have a lot of say about what you're named normally. It just happens to you. Um, I quite like my name. I'm very happy with it. I have no desire to change it. But, you know, we we do change names. If you get married, you may change your surname. Lots of people decide to change their name for other kinds of reasons. But it's normally a personal choice. If you decide to change your name today, you will have a say in doing that. Just imagine somebody came and said, from now on, you are to be known as something different. And everybody is going to call you this name. How would you feel? I would feel, I don't know, really put out to start with. I'd feel less than me. I would feel like something of my identity has been removed from me. But look at what Daniel's name is changed from. He's Daniel. That's his Hebrew name. And that name means God is our judge. It's a name that describes something of the character of God. The name that he is given, Belteshazzar, means Bel or Baal protects his life, and it's a name for one of the Babylonian gods. So not only is his name something that he doesn't want, but it's something that describes a pagan god. So why doesn't he say anything about it? Why does he not say, hold on a minute, I don't want this name, please can you just call me Daniel? Why is there no record of him saying this is a bit of compromise? Well, you know, people can call you whatever they want, actually. People sometimes call me all kinds of things that I'm not sure I particularly want to be called. But as long as they don't stick, they don't interfere with our integrity, with who we are as a person. They can damage, they can wound, but they don't actually show who we are as a person. For Daniel and his friends, it's almost as if they are Teflon to the names that are being given to them. It just won't stick. 
Call me what you want, I'm still Daniel. Call me Belteshazzar if that's what you want to call me. But I'm still God's, and my heart still belongs to him. But since there's a question here, how secure are we in who Christ has named us to be? You know, we are called forgiven. We are called chosen. We are called loved, a royal priesthood. All these names that we have been given, how secure are we in those? Do we stand firm in the names that God has given us? The fourth thing, then, that happens is the food from the king's table. Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't want his brightest and best going hungry and starving on him and looking all pale and insipid. So what he does is he says, you can have food from my table. Now, the banquet of the king would have been the best of everything in the ancient world. It would have been the best meats, the finest wines, the best this empire had to offer. And to be fed from the king's table was an honor. It was a privilege. You know, if if the king invited you to Buckingham Palace and said, come and eat from my table, it would be a privilege. It would be an honor. It's that kind of thing, but on an even grander scale at this point. But here, Daniel puts a marker in the sand. Here, he says, I can't do that. Please, can I do something else? So why, and what does this teach us? Well, for Daniel, this is an issue of compromise. For Daniel, this is an issue that starts to affect how he views himself and how he views God. And there are two things going on here. The first thing is, if he was to eat the the, the food from the king's table, he would defile himself against the Levitical code, against the Jewish law. Because the Babylonians ate pork, which no Jew could eat. They also ate horse meat and all kinds of other things. And a lot of that is the kind of things that that just no God-honoring Jew would do. A lot of the food may also have been um, offered to idols as sacrifice. So that is one reason. But there's another reason here, and it's this. In the ancient world, if you had a meal with somebody, it could be very symbolic at times. And it could be about making a covenant with that person or being subservient to that person. If you want to look these passages up in your Bible later on, I haven't got them on the screen, but in Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban make a covenant over a meal. In Exodus 24, the Lord and the leaders of Israel make covenant over meal. And here, to accept food from the king's table is like saying, I'm subservient to the king. I belong to the king. No God-honoring Jew who had a real love for the Lord could say, Nebuchadnezzar is my Lord. And this is what eating food from the table would effectively do. So what happens? Well, he says, no, I can't do that. He will live with all these other narratives shifting around him. But here, this becomes about allegiance. To share the king's table is to compromise both sense of self, to compromise belief, and to compromise who he believes God has called him to be. What's the result of him making a stand? Well, God's favor rests upon him. He steps out and he makes a stand for God and he finds that God is there as he stands and he makes that decision. And so he asks for water and vegetables. This is food that doesn't originate from the king's table. It's food that cannot be defiled. And as Daniel steps out, God steps in. You know, when we are prepared to put our lives on the line for Jesus when we are prepared to speak out about the hope we have in Jesus, when we are prepared to do the kinds of things that Daniel does, we find that God is there. God is with us. It doesn't mean it's easy. As we go through the book of Daniel, he does not end up in easy situations. But in each situation he will be in, he knows that God 
is with him. So Daniel and his friends in verse 9, they are shown favor by the royal official to try Daniel's dietary request for 10 days. And at the end of that period, these young men, they look brighter, better, more well than the ones who've been eating the royal food. God is at work. They're given the ability to understand all the literature. Daniel is given the ability to interpret dreams. And he will be right front and center of all God's purposes in both Babylon and then later on in the Persian Empire. So I want us to reflect, really, on two things from this passage. Who owns your heart this morning? Really, who owns it? The Sunday school answer is, well, it's Jesus. But is that true in your heart? You know, our heart can be pulled around by all kinds of things. It can be pulled around by our desire for for money or status. It can be pulled around by our career. It can be pulled around by emotions of fear or worry. And we can suddenly find that actually we're not really belonging to God. We may say we are. We may have sung we are this morning. But actually, if push comes to shove, we're not really all the Lord's. Can I encourage you this morning just to do a heart check up and say, really, who does your heart belong to? You see, if Daniel's heart had belonged to himself or belonged to anybody else, he would not have had the courage to stand up at this point. It would have been so easy for him to just say, well, I'll, I'll take whatever food comes my way and I'll try not to defile myself a little bit. You know, I'll just keep quiet. But no, he doesn't. He steps out. The second thing is taking a stand. The first time that Daniel realizes that to compromise his own belief and faith in God is put before him, he makes the stand. And he says, I will not do this. I will not go through the door that means that I am compromised. And as Daniel makes his stand for his faith in God, that he will not be owned by the king, the result is that God honors him. John has already mentioned today that we had our leaders away day yesterday, and we we started that time together. Um, And we, we were thinking about something that Hugh Osgood had said a few weeks back, if you were here when he was speaking. And one, one thing, it was actually in the evening service, I think, I asked him a question. What is the greatest challenge that the church in the UK faces at the moment? And he said, quite simply this, it's a lack of confidence in the gospel. It's a lack of confidence in the gospel, both for our churches and in proclaiming the gospel, but also in our individual hearts, that the gospel is God's power to save us. There's a verse in Proverbs 14, and it says this, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. See, when we put God first, when our heart really, like Daniel does, when it belongs to him, we find that we can put ourselves in the arms of the Almighty, the strong arms that will not let us go, that will not fail us, that are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as Daniel goes on, as he and his friends face things like um, Daniel in the lion's den and the fiery furnace, these are not easy situations. But what he will find is God remains faithful. God is with him when he takes the stand and says, I cannot compromise myself. I don't know about your personal situations today. I don't know what you're going through in life. I don't know whether you are facing those situations where actually you're being asked to compromise your faith in Jesus. It might be that you're being asked to do things at work and actually you know that it's not right and you're scared and you don't know what to do. If that's you today, can I encourage you to read Daniel 1 and see what he does. Or it might be at the moment that you're living with your your friends possibly as a kind of undercover Christian. 
you know, kind of secret agent for Jesus, but nobody knows you're a Christian. You're not speaking up. You're not saying anything. And it might be a bit like Peter in the courtyard, you know, when Peter denies Jesus and we're just keeping quiet. And actually our faith is compromised because we're not fulfilling that call to be witnesses. And it might be today that you just need to read Daniel 1 or I need to read Daniel 1 and say, actually, Lord, please help me to have the courage to stand for you. Please help me to have the courage to be known as one of your disciples. Or it might be something practical. It might be that actually, you know, the call to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, we're trying to do the God bit, but we're really struggling in loving our neighbors. And it might be actually that, that we're, we're compromising around some of the things that the gospel says are absolutely key if we want to be Jesus people. I know what the situations are in my own life. I don't know what your situations are. But can I encourage you, take Daniel 1 and just reflect and say, where do I need to take a stand? Where do I need to pray for the courage and the wisdom to do the right thing, to do the God thing and to step out? And when we step out, there is no promise it will be easy. But we step out with God who is with us. God who is with Daniel and God who will be with us this morning. It's my prayer really today that actually all of us, whether life is great, whether life is really tough, that we will look at this chapter and say, Lord, help me to have the courage to stand up for you and help me to have that deep confidence in who you are. Let me pray for us and then if the worship team would like to come forward. Lord, we thank you for the example of Daniel. We thank you that as he found himself in a culture that was so alien to where he came from, that through your wisdom he worked out where to make the stand. And thank you that you blessed him. And Lord, I just pray for each of us in our lives today, whatever situations we're finding ourselves in, that you will help us too to stand firm in our faith in you. And Lord, as, as Daniel made that stand. We know that was the start of a process in this book where he then goes on to do the most incredible things for you. And we just pray too that as we make the stand in our own hearts, in our own lives, that you will use that for your glory and for your kingdom purposes. So Holy Spirit, just highlight those areas just now in the quietness where perhaps we need to do business with you today. Just leave a moment of quiet. Perhaps it is that God is speaking to you. You just need to respond to him in whatever way this morning. Just a moment of quiet. Holy Spirit, come amongst us. Would you change us, mold us, renew our confidence in the gospel, our confidence in you, and help us to make that stand that we've been singing about this morning. Just pray as we go into whatever this week holds, that whatever tricky or awkward situations we find ourselves in where we're not sure what to do to remain true to you, that you will give us the wisdom You'll give us your insight and you will give us your Holy Spirit to empower us to stand firm in our faith. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.